what we possess are copies of those documents or even copies of copies of those documents. And so sometimes between the various manuscripts that we have, there are differences resulting from the fact that someone didn't copy down perfectly the original. And that could be to us disturbing, right? If we say the Bible is the inspired word of God, but we don't have the actual originals, how do we know that we have the word of God? Well, let me say to you, first of all, this morning, that you may, with confidence, without hesitation or fear, confess that you hold in your hands the word of God. There are some variants among Greek manuscripts, but they are a relatively small number. And among all the variants, most of them have absolutely no significance. Someone has said 95% of the variants between Greek manuscripts are no more important than the question, should the word honor in English be spelled with a U or not with a U? It doesn't matter. If you're reading a text and it's the British spelling or the American spelling, it makes no difference. And so it is with so many of the variants in the Greek manuscripts. We can recognize, therefore, that God has done a marvelous thing. Not only in inspiring the scriptures, they were written infallibly, but in preserving the scriptures down through the ages. The, the text of scripture, the ancient text, is one of a kind that's come from God, but it's also received one of a kind care. There is no ancient text that has been so wonderfully preserved and transmitted as the scriptures. And obviously because God's spirit caused those who dealt with the scriptures to tremble before this word and to deal with it with care. R.C. Sproul writes that with respect to the main substance of scripture, more than 99% of it is in agreement in all the families of copies. It is in less than 1% of the texts in the Bible that the variant readings are found No major doctrine of the Christian church is affected by those variant readings. That's an important point. Bible scholars often point that out, that there's no, though there are occasionally variants, there's no doctrine we hold to that's affected by these variants. So all that's important. Hold in your hands and say, I have the word of God. Be confident in that. God has done a masterful job in preserving it. We confess with the Westminster Confession, not only that God immediately inspired the scriptures, but, quote, by his singular care and providence, he has kept them pure in all ages. Down through the centuries, God has watched over the transmission of his word. So most variants are of little consequence. This morning, however, we come to a big portion. This is unusual, a big portion. And some say it's not in the earliest manuscripts. It's true that there's Eastern tradition and Western traditional manuscripts, and it wasn't found so much in the Eastern manuscripts. But the overwhelming consensus has been down through the ages that this is an apostolic, authentic, reliable testimony of what took place, that we should receive it, it should be part of the scriptures. Some Greek manuscripts placed it where we have it here, some have it in a different spot in John's gospel, some manuscripts even put it in Luke's gospel, but the church has received it as the word of God. William Hendrickson in his commentary notes some of the reasons that testify to it. He points out that Papias, a disciple of the Apostle John, actually seems to have known about this story and to have expounded it. He notes that Augustine, early church father, actually says that some took this story out of their manuscripts because they feared it would be misused as an excuse for infidelity. But above all, he reminds us that what we read here is obviously Christ in character. This is the same Jesus we meet throughout the Gospels. 
And as well, the enemies of Christ are in character here. These are the enemies, the hypocrisy among his enemies that we meet throughout. And so let us take up this word as the word God has preserved for us, an authentic testimony of the ministry of the Lord Jesus that we might be blessed by. And it's been called a pearl of great price, and so it is. Let's look this morning then at John chapter 8 and how Christ reveals his majesty by doing two things. He reveals his majesty, first of all, by putting haughty hearts to shame, and then he reveals his majesty, secondly, by lifting the shamed heart to heaven. First of all, Christ puts haughty hearts, proud hearts, to shame. The, The episode here opens with Jesus going in the early morning to the temple, and Jesus, as we know, it is never late for work. He's always, he's always eager to be about his father's business. He's always zealous for the ministry God has given him. He's always delighted to shepherd the people of God. And so it is that the people come here to the temple. Jesus sits down, begins to teach them. And we have the good shepherd among the flock instructing them. And Jesus, just beyond what we read in John 8, verse 12, says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And here in this beautiful scene, Christ is is proclaiming that light. He's giving that light. He's illuminating the Father to these people in the way of salvation. And that is the nature and calling of our Savior. The Son of God has come from heaven to be our chief prophet and teacher. And each Lord's Day as we gather, even like this morning here, we, we gather in prayer that Christ, our chief prophet and teacher, would be among us by his word and his spirit to give us the light of life. There's no better place to be. There's no more pleasurable place to be. There's no safer place to be than to, to gather to Christ in the company of the saints and to pray, Lord Jesus, teach us, show us the Father, show us the way of salvation. And this should be an increasing hunger in our hearts as God's people to want to come to Christ and be taught by him. And he promises to do that through the ministry of his church. But it's precisely this relationship between Christ, our teacher, and the humble hearts that want to hear it. It's precisely this relationship that Satan wants to disrupt. And so it is here in our text this morning that Satan comes to disrupt this relationship the scribes and the Pharisees show up to the scene. The boys and girls, the scribes were theologians. They were professional theologians. They were the, the experts in the law. That was a career. That was their job. And then the Pharisees were people who belonged to a certain movement, a certain political party. They were the, they were the conservative party. They were the, the ones who, who wanted the church to be more pure. And they come together here not to listen and learn from Jesus. They come together not to humbly sit down and say, Lord, teach us. But they come to test him, we read, verse 6, to trap him. They want to to gain evidence and accusation against Jesus to destroy him, to kill him. And what is their trap? Well, they drag before Jesus a woman who was caught in a criminal act. Either she was married or was caught with a man who is married, was married. And they knew Jesus was was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so they drag the woman in and say, Moses' law commands she should be executed. What do you say? Moses' law did say that. Deuteronomy 22 had the death penalty for 
for adultery, had the death penalty for various sins. In the Old Testament era, the church and state were one. And God, through capital punishment, made clear to his people that his justice is firm. And he revealed to all of us that we all deserve to die. The wage of sin is death. And God was preparing for the coming of Christ. But here's the trap. Here's the trap. If Jesus suggests the woman should be executed or punished, then they hope that this friend of sinners, this preaching of grace to sinners, will be disrupted. Or maybe if, if, if Jesus says she should be executed, then they'll run to the Romans and say, hey, he's trying to usurp your role. Because apparently in the New Testament era, the Jews didn't have the freedom to execute anyone without Roman authority, without Roman permission. So then on the one side of he says, execute her. But on the other side of he says, don't execute her. Then what will they do? Then they're going to accuse him of of going against Moses, of breaking the law. So they, they've set the chessboard. They, they, they've got the trap laid for Jesus. What are you going to do, Jesus? And what does Jesus do? He stoops down and begins to write on the ground. He does it again after he speaks. He stoops down and writes on the ground. What did he write? Big question. Lots of people like to think about that and debate that. The favorite interpretation seems to be that Jesus wrote down the sins these men had committed. But the text doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote. And in fact, the emphasis of the text doesn't seem to be on what Jesus wrote, but on the fact that he was writing, that he was writing. I think, I think the impression that we're given here is that they come rushing to Jesus breathless. What will you do? And he just turns away and ignores them. Somebody who turns away from us in the midst of a conversation or turns their back on us or just begins to doodle and pays no attention to us. So Jesus is proclaiming that he despises their intentions and their wickedness. He's shocked and horrified that they're going to use this miserable woman as their pawn and tool to try to destroy Jesus without any love or concern for her. Christ is not trapped by them. He's the Lord of majesty. They come in so eager and Christ just turns away and begins to doodle. And then they press him some more and press him. So verse 7, they continued asking him. And so he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without, without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Jesus is not suggesting that her sin is of little importance. He's not removing the seventh commandment. She apparently had violated the marriage bond that's to be held sacred. Christ is not even arguing that the law of Moses, the Old Testament economy is fulfilled now, and so just forget about that. We're in a new era. But Christ is pointing out to these men that they are utterly unfit to execute the sentence of the holy law of God. In fact, what angers the Lord Jesus here is that the moment they're accusing her of adultery, they are engaged in the work of murder. That's what they're doing here. They're they're completely intent upon gathering up some accusation by which to kill Jesus as they pretend to be so concerned for the law of Moses and the holiness of the church. So Jesus says, the one without sin, throw the first stone. And in some way, Christ is appealing to Deuteronomy 17 
which said that no one could be put to death except on the testimony of two or three witnesses, and the witnesses, their hands will be the ones to first. Let me read it. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. That was a rule in the Old Testament to keep you from making a frivolous charge against someone. You think it's so easy just to say, I saw him do this, or I think she did that? Okay. Then you get to throw the first stone. You get to put the sword through him. Well, okay, maybe I didn't see that. I'm not sure what I saw. Jesus goes further, however, than the text of Deuteronomy 17. Not just that you have to be witnesses, but he says you have to be without sin. You have to be unblemished. Some would perhaps use this text as if to overthrow all judicial decisions. I mean, where is there a judge on earth who's without sin? I guess we can't have courts anymore. Or or where is a parent without sin? I guess parents can't correct their children anymore. Or where is an elder without sin? I guess we have to throw church discipline out the window. That's not what Christ is doing here. But Christ is saying that your heart's are hard and haughty. The only way to love the law of Moses, to love the Lord, is with a heart that hates your own sin. You, with your murderous hearts, come to indict this woman. They have no real interest in what's right before God. They're not concerned for righteousness, for truth. They're filled with an arrogant legalism, caring nothing about her life. Look what they've done here. This woman, this woman is in desperate need of of the Lord, right? But how are they dealing with their sister? They, they drag her before the crowd? No concern for her life? Heaping shame upon her all for the purpose of getting Jesus? No love, no compassion? And really they're acting like Satan, aren't they? Like Satan, who uses people and swallows them up for the purpose of destroying Jesus. When you look at all that Satan does, right, to all the human lives he's ruined, his great concern is to destroy Jesus, to destroy the kingdom of Jesus. He cares nothing about human lives. And here, the children of the devil act the same. By the way, where's the man? Both. Both sinners were to receive the death penalty, Moses said, but somehow there's no man now, these are men who find joy in judging her. They find more joy in judging Jesus Christ. They're unfit to carry out the sentence. And so Christ speaks that word. If you're without sin, then go ahead and throw the first stone. And then we read in verse 9, Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. John Calvin writes, Here we perceive how great is the power of an evil conscience. Those, though those wicked, um, those wicked hypocrites intended to entrap Christ, yet as soon as he pierces their consciences by a single word, he shames them and puts them to flight. Behold the majesty of Jesus coming to entrap Jesus, and he steps right over it, and he digs a pit for them. Far from getting the evidence they wanted to accuse Jesus, they all stand accused and they depart in shame. They have suffered a humiliating defeat. And so it will be for all of Christ's enemies. 
will be that way for all of Christ's enemies, those who boast in their pride, those who are haughty in this life. When Christ visits them, whether now or on Judgment Day, with one single word, they will be ashamed. From the oldest to the youngest, they depart. Proud heart cannot stand before the Lord Jesus. We should remember that. We should take account of our own judgments. Judgmentalism is a word often misused in our culture to suggest that anything goes. There's no right or wrong. That's certainly not true. But there is a judgmentalism that Christ condemns. It's the kind that's before us in this passage. That judges without mercy. That judges others without hating the sin inside of us. That judges others not for the glory of God, but to boost our own ego. And we do that, don't we? We find it pleasurable to point out others' faults. To shake our head at someone else's life. To laugh at others' mistakes. And that's not of Christ, but of the devil, who loves to destroy life. The proud heart cannot stand before Jesus. He exposes it. But then Christ lifts the shamed heart to heaven, we see secondly. Christ lifts the shamed heart to heaven. Isn't it wonderful that Christ is not merely concerned to put his enemies to shame, but he reveals his greater joy is to give grace. And so now Jesus purposefully and and kindly addresses a word to this woman who's standing there. Her, Her enemies are gone, but she's still standing there. And does Jesus leave her in guilt and shame? No, he speaks a word to her. He raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. He said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Now he addresses her as a woman, right? As as a human, as an image bearer. She sinned against the Lord, but Christ doesn't treat her as dirt. Christ doesn't treat her as dirt. We learn from Jesus that when we treat our politicians as dirt, it is not the way of the Savior. When we see a homeless man or woman addicted to fentanyl passed out on the sidewalk or to treat them as image bearers, all the more when we see a brother or sister in the Lord fall into sin to treat them as humans. She responds to Jesus, no one, Lord. She calls him Lord. Lord had a range of meanings. It could just mean sir. Or it could mean a lot more, as we know. Our Lord Jesus, the King. Did she recognize that he was someone different? I get the impression she did. I think it's remarkable that she hasn't run away. That she hasn't run away. I mean, if she was an angry, feisty woman... And she'd been dragged there by these men that as soon as they disappeared, she would have shook it off and marched out of there. But when all of her accusers are gone, she stays there. She stands there as if to wait for the Lord to speak. Recognizing that his verdict is the one that matters. He's the one person who has no sin. He could take up a stone. And what does he say to her? 
neither do I condemn you. What a, what a breathtaking word. What a beautiful word. This woman is an outcast. She, under the Mosaic economy, she deserved stoning according to the law at that time. And yet she meets in Jesus now the very grace of God. Neither do I condemn you. We all, like this woman, have been caught in the act, haven't we? Every one of us. God's all-seeing eyes have seen everything we've done. He's, he's seen every thought, every motive. He's heard every word. We stand for Christ. Of ourselves, we're only naked and ashamed, but then to hear the word, no condemnation. Back in John chapter 3, verse 17, we read, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If all God wanted to do with sinners was condemn them, he could have done that from heaven. But he sent his son into our messy world in our flesh to die our death, to save us from our sin, from our guilt, from God's wrath, from its power. And in these words, when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, he's, he's prophesying what he came to do, right? He came to not condemn, but to save This is the very nature of his work. This is the delight of his heart. This is his mission from the Father to save sinners. He came not for the the healthy but for the sick. He came not for the righteous but to call sinners to repentance. This is the Savior. And how would Jesus provide salvation for us? It would not be by relaxing the law of God. He, He would not go to his Father and argue that God's law is too strict, that demands are too strenuous, you need to lighten up a bit. That's not what he would do, but he would go to the cross where the full weight of God's justice, the full punishment for every one of our sins would be meted out on him. He would be struck in our place. Salvation comes not by God becoming more flexible, but by the severity of God's wrath striking Jesus. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10 Or Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners... Christ died for us. What a word of mercy. Merciful Savior. Not the phony mercy of our culture, which wants to say to everybody, no condemnation, no condemnation, there's no right or wrong. That's not mercy, that's death. But hear from the lips of the one who will pay for our sins, the proclamation, no condemnation. That's something entirely different. Tonight we... Gather to hear God's word concerning justification. The pronouncement that we are righteous before God. What a glorious, glorious truth of scripture. How thankful we are for the Protestant Reformation to regain that truth. But Jesus not only speaks to her no condemnation, then he says go and sin no more. He summons her to go forth now and to leave her old life because he's freed her not just from the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin, that she may walk with the Lord in his light. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Christ is not the cheap grace that some promote, as if, you know, you're forgiven, so just go on sinning. It's all right. Or you can't judge anybody, let everybody do what they want, just business as usual, living in sin. No, 
As we noted this morning, God brought his people out of the land of Egypt. He delivered them from slavery, not now to do whatever they want. But God was specific. When you go into the land of Canaan, wipe out their false gods and worship me alone. You've been redeemed to serve me. And so Christ brings to this woman a new commission. Go forth in the liberty and the joy of forgiveness and live for your Lord. Honor the author of your salvation. We don't honor salvation by jumping into the first mud puddle we find right after Jesus has cleaned us off. To continue in sin is to reject grace. But to turn from sin with sorrow to Christ, to follow him, that's genuine repentance. And so we have a Savior who bathes us in grace to dress us in obedience. And he gives a fresh start. It's a mercy of Jesus, isn't it? It's not just a command. Go and sin no more. It's not just a command. It is a mercy. To return to a life of sin, and slavery and misery and death, but to be called to walk with Christ, that is life. Isn't it glorious that in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, Sinners are not told, you've ruined your life, it's over. Go get lost. But he's proclaiming here that there's room in his kingdom for failures like us. We're not told what the woman did, what her response is. I like to think because she stood there, and because she addressed him humbly, that she met on this day the Lord of light and salvation. It's only the heart that's experienced grace that can hear in the command, go and sin no more, more grace. It's only the heart that's experienced forgiveness that can hear Christ say, go and sin no more, and rejoice to hear that. First John says we love him because he first loved us. And then it says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Let the beauty of your Savior appear to you today and realize that there's no way to fight against temptation, and there's no way to stand in the path of righteousness. Unless you're living in grace. If you're not living out of Christ Jesus, out of his grace, then, then the commandments are all burdensome. They're all this weight, this ball and chain. They're all this, this burden I have to bear. But if you've experienced Jesus Christ, if you've heard the word of forgiveness, then it's your delight to know the holiness of Jesus, to walk with your Savior in the paths of righteousness. So let his amazing love overwhelm you. Let his mercy saturate your life like a giant ocean. Let his gentle, tender, loving person draw you near. Because if you don't, Satan will drag you before a crowd of accusations. He will heap devastating shame upon you, and he will destroy you. 
he will destroy you. Satan loves to destroy with shame and regret. He will tell you there's no way back, that you've ruined it all, you've lost it all. Your life is over, you're an outcast. He loves to drive people out of the church. He loves to lead people to think when they hear the gospel, but it can't be true for me because I've done all this. But it's the bold witness of God's word that God's grace is greater. That there's no sin we've committed that can't be forgiven by the blood of the Lord Jesus, that his grace is greater than all of our sin. And isn't it amazing then that just as at the cross of Christ, Jesus is drugged by the hands of wicked men, he's actually led by the hand of his Father. So on the very same day, the most heinous crime and the most glorious salvation are accomplished. And in the life of this woman too, what was the very worst day of her life became, we hope, by the sovereignty of God, the very best day of her life. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Amen. Our Father in heaven, what a glorious Savior you've given to us. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for all the testimony of the Christ who is ours. We pray that the reality of who our Savior is, what he did and what he speaks, that it will drive away all the lies of Satan, who loves to destroy May we be comforted. May we, beholding our Savior, be eager to run to him. May we be glad to turn from our sins and to come quickly to him, knowing that we find in him a forgiving Savior. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would know that grace of forgiveness, so that living the Christian life would not be for us a burden, but a great delight. Forgive us, O oh Lord, where we have been hypocritical like these scribes and Pharisees. We have been wrongly judgmental. Teach us, O Lord, to love the ways of the Savior. And as we carry out our duties to hate our own sin, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.